Today's Heavy Strategy is sponsored in part by Collide. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. To find out how, visit collide.com slash heavy strategy. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash heavy strategy. Greg and I today are going to be talking about Let's the pros say and sometimes. Cons. You're equivocating. Oh, you always say sometimes. I was stealing it. Okay. <laughs> Where the question okay. should be, if you want to equivocate, I just yeah, say, you, like, you the equivocate all the no, you equivocate all the time, man. That's because I'm tired listen. of being abused by people on Twitter. All right, okay, <laughs> here we go. Welcome to Heavy Strategy, where the questions are more interesting than the answers some of the time. Greg and I are here to talk about the pros and cons of low code, no code, or in other in other words. Does it make sense to turn all your users into developers? Greg, I know you have lots of thoughts on this, so what do you think? The Probably the best thing to do is to quickly sort of give a definition of what low code is. I did some searching around on the internet and the consensus seems to be it's a development process that focuses on a visual development and interfaces to enable quick app delivery with little hand coding. And I think that works okay for me. That's It's, it's basically the idea that I come to it with low code is it's not no code, but I can get 80% of what I needed to get done, done with 20% of the effort. I'm a big fan of the 80-20 rule. Low code means I get a tool, probably from a vendor. Most of the work has been done by somebody else. And really what I've got to do is weld together a bunch of standard modules because everybody's using the same technology, generally doing it in the same way. The only thing that's different between you and anybody else is a small subset of activities. And that's basically the difference. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, but no, as <laughs> usual. And just for a little bit of context, uh, you know, when I started coding, I was coding in assembly language. So everything is very different. I remember the great breakthrough in my era was graphical coding so that you could just, you know, point and click and, and attach modules to each other by looking at boxes on a screen instead of typing in arcane sequences of random characters. Obviously, that was a big step up. But as I'm listening to you talk, I think the issue here, Greg, is you keep saying I. And you are a technologist. And the whole promise of low-code, no-code is that non-technologists can begin writing functional code because they don't need to understand all the stuff under the, you know, under the hood, so to speak. Hmm. They can just begin connecting boxes and circles and, and stuff will just work. I'm skeptical about that. I agree with you. I am looking at it. For, that's why I'm saying this is my view on the situation. I think different. it's a bit, a lot of people look at Excel and see that as a programming environment. And I actually think of Excel as the most prominent low-code environment, if you kind of think about it, right? People, the idea that you can add up a column of numbers in Excel is actually a kind of low-code. And that was how I sort of approached this topic is low-code exists in places that we just don't kind of think about it. So tools like Excel... Um, to a lesser extent, email, and there's a whole bunch of others. But in this case, I'm thinking much more about, say, if I want to automate infrastructure, do I really want to go out there and master Python, Ansible, Terraform, you know, start coding, uh, Get then I have to go and master GitHub, then I have to come up with a CI-CD pipeline, then I have to developing a testing strategy, then I have to develop a, a validation program. So every time I need to create, I then need to pass it into a testing and then I have to validate. It seems to me that that's a lot of work. In fact, it's not even work. It's just toil. Is that really that useful to you to actually handcraft, you know, artisanally sculpting the code to do this? Or would it be better just to go and get something that somebody else has developed for you 
and get the job done faster. So as I wrote in my notes, get to the pay rise quicker. A lot of lot of responses to that. I think the first thing I would say is I, I like the fact that you've kind of articulated a real target user base for this, which is technologists who are not coders. And I think in that scenario, as a matter of fact, that's no code is probably really that's the sweet spot. That's where you that's where people with mm. An understanding of what engineering must look like, an understanding of an engineering mind, but just don't happen to be Python gurus can really, that's a, that's a force multiplier for them. That said, what I'm listening to you say as well is, oh, let's, let's just ditch all the security and let's just ditch all the best practices and let's just throw code out there that happens to automate our infrastructure without any testing and without any validation mm. and with no guarantee that the person doing it has a clue what they're really doing from a software development perspective. And to me, I just get hives. I could see that. So there's an uncontrolled environment. I think there's also a shadow IT perspective there where a lot of no-code tools are so easy to adopt. They're often hosted in the cloud. So you look at the success of products like Snowflake as a data analysis tool, like that is a company that's now with multiple billions of dollars um, on very little revenue because people see it as a way to no code their way into data analysis. So instead of going off and building, you know, a high performance compute infrastructure and then creating, hiring data scientists, to some extent, these people can go in, drag and drop some stuff together and Snowflake does 80% of what you need to get a, a data analysis out. And I think that is the example that I was leaning towards is connecting tools together increasingly in IT is the thing is we had silos before and we didn't connect these things together. And now the convergence is happening. So we're seeing dev and ops merge. We're seeing infrastructure silos merge. We're seeing operations and infrastructure merge, you know, dev sec ops, net ops, sec, you know, whatever it is this week, that's the latest buzzword. And I think ultimately low code is an expression of, is especially value bull for low value activities in the sense that common every day, like Excel, it does a great job of a pivot table. How hard would it be to create a pivot table for a one-off report? Well, quite difficult to go out and write a data extraction and da, 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 da. But if you've got Excel and you've got the data and you just load it in manually, you can create a pivot table, you know, within a couple of days. That's the example that's in the back of my mind as to why I'd want to do it. Well, that, that makes sense. And I sort of am smiling at the fact that you say low value. So basically, mm. if you're doing something that doesn't matter anyway, do it in, in low code, no code. And I need no, to, yeah. no, no, I'm, I'm joking. I'm exaggerating yeah, 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 your yeah, perspective. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm about to say is not the Nemertes perspective. Uh, if you talk to my colleague, John Burke, the CTO of Nemertes, he will talk about the many, many uses of low code, no code in network automation and infrastructure automation, the example that you pushed out, Greg. Yeah. So... For, from that perspective, I just want people to be clear that Nemertes is actually, a, as a company, is an, a strong advocate of the whole no-code, mm. low-code proposition. That said, as a senior-level technologist, see all these gray hairs, my initial response is, oh, yay. You know, I love that it's it, it makes coding suddenly very egalitarian because you don't have to know all the, the icky stuff to code. On the other hand, my experience when you give untrained, inexperienced people powerful tools is that they do things very, very wrong. And the example of Excel mm. that's been sticking in the back of my head is there's something floating around on social media where someone went in and, and analyzed the financial analysis analyses that many large companies did in Excel and something like 
50 or 60 percent of them had fundamental mistakes, the kind of mistakes that you'd have to report to the board. Because mm. when you have people who don't know what they're doing, that's what happens. And but I think those that makes... mistakes would happen just as equally in something else. Yeah, it's not the it's not the tool. Absolutely, it is the mm. fact that you're taking somebody who doesn't understand fundamentally validation. doesn't understand how form yeah. how formulas work, what validation is, software development methodology. You know, for me, it's second nature. Anything that I create, I test, and I test it. I do test it to destruction almost. Mm. And the way that I do it is very much engineering informed. It doesn't mean mm. I catch everything because you never want to test your own thing, but at least it's built into my head that. You can't simply do something and assume it works. And in fact, that's a very, very basic assumption that most I like that argument. Make. I like that argument, but let me give you the counter argument. Maybe half sure. asked is better than no asked. The challenge with endpoint security has always been that it's difficult to scale. And when remote work took over, that challenge got exponentially harder. You need visibility into your fleet of devices in order to meet security goals and reduce service desk tickets. But how do you get that visibility when different parts of your company run on Mac, Windows, and Linux? You get Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard regardless of their operating system. And instead of installing intrusive agents or locking down devices, Collide takes a user-focused approach that communicates security recommendations to your employees directly on Slack. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. Visit collide.com slash heavy strategy to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash heavy strategy. So the challenge here is, yes, there might be mistakes, but at least they've got some data. In so many companies, the fact that somebody's getting something wrong in Excel is certainly an issue, but it would be worse if they weren't doing it at all. So uh, half-assed is better disagree. than no-assed. Yeah? I would disagree. The kind of mistake that you make that is gets that should get board-level visibility, mm. oh, I'm sorry, actually our profitability was negative this quarter. I should have inverted that cell. <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't agree. I'd rather have yes. them say, sorry, it's going to take us another month because the programmer was busy yeah. than have something well, like that, which is why I liked your notion that there's a cutoff point. There's an area in which mistakes are tolerable and half-assed mm. is better than, than okay. no-assed. Let me give you okay. my counter-counter for that. So my counter-counter okay. is that a lot of people become data-driven. So you hear people say, I'm data-driven. I want to see the data. I want to see the analysis. But what they also do is they then suppress their instincts. And you should be able to look at a report and say, that does not match my instinct. That's not correct. And so when people tell me that they're data-driven or that the business is data-led, I'm actually hearing incompetence speaking out loud. I know a lot of the times what they're actually saying is, I want to see proof. I don't want to just take your word for it. I need to see some sort of data to say that this is a valid statement or whatever. And I accept that. That's perfectly okay. But what we also see is when somebody puts a, a chart with lots of pretty colors in front of them, they go, they just treat it like it's some form of, you know, truth and cannot be challenged and decisions must be made based on it without taking any sort of instinct or understanding of the business to it. Fair? Absolutely fair. And I'm 100% with you on this because this brings up the point that I really wanted to make, which is if there there is a way to counter my argument, hmm. which is training in how to think logically and I think anyone who is going to be handed a low-code, no-code tool who is not has not already gone through a formal 
software development or computer engineering course or sequence of courses should be taught. Here are the basic things to think about. Here are the basic best practices for doing things. And here's how to sanity check mm. your output. Um, because what I've, I've seen exactly what you're saying, and actually I've seen it uh, mm. in scientists and engineers who should know better, where they get an output that makes no sense whatsoever. And we look at it and go, well, did it ever occur to you that this over here can't be twice the size of that given the sample size or whatever? Mm. And they go, oh, no. So so some kind of training that says not not training to learn a particular tool, but training on how to think logically with any tool, I think would be imperative. The thing that is possible here is that because we lack the skills to create these tools from the ground up, the advantage potentially is that with low-code tooling, we don't have to have skills that obviate. So one of the problems that I have when I'm coding in Python or is I'm so wrapped up in the process, checking it in and out of GitHub and blah, 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 that I actually don't have time to do the testing that you're talking about or to do the sniff testing or the, the business. You get lost in the in the flow, you know, the writing code and the algorithms and reading from the database and all that sort of stuff. Whereas low-code means... Yeah. So, so the counter there is if I'm doing low-code, I've got more time available to apply my skills and experience to the data analysis, not to the data process. So there is a balance here to be struck. Yes, you're right. People could say, oh, this is so easy and just get it, you know, and then fail. But on the other hand, they would have more time left to actually check the data, to validate that it's correct. Not that they well, will. Well, Greg, but, Greg, know. I'm going to stop you here because, again, you're falling into that uh, the mistake of using I as an example. You mm. are not the intended user. You are somebody no. who has been through engineering training and does have an engineering, a long backlog of engineering experience. My concern is that the the ordinary user might have more time to do this, but not know not know what to test for and how mm. to run the sniff test. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's where you can get really a lot of benefit from these tools is if you take the base of users and run them through nothing specific to the to the process. As you said, the process is a distraction, but literally this is how to think logically. This is how to construct a, a process that makes sense. This is how to figure out what the, you know, what the outliers might look like. And this is how to sanity test the results. Then I think you're cooking with gas. But mm. unless you do that, you are running the risk of people using, you know, the, almost the sorcerer's apprentice. Yeah. They have an enormous amount of power and they don't understand how to use it for good. Yeah, I can agree with that. Yeah, that, I mean, that is a risk, but that's also a risk of any somebody writing a, pro, you know, with a project to custom develop an application for you. I don't, oh, absolutely. I don't no, there's no guarantee yeah. that all programmers have, have good, you know, have good mm. sniff tests. So in fact, I, I would actually recommend that pretty much anyone go through the course to make it, you know, the, the mm. course that I'm envisioning to make it something that it's not a um, status thing. Oh, yeah. you've actually aced out of it. It's like, look, everybody, we all, some of us know how to code really well. Some of us don't. Some of us are engineers. Some mm. of us are accountants. It doesn't really matter. We're all going to go through this because it's basic. I don't want to call it hygiene, mm -hmm. but basic logic, basic how to think about problems. So let's talk about some of the negatives. I think we sort of laid out a case for it. There's a balance here, right? You're highlighting the risk is that people could come up with results without taking due diligence. I think that would happen regardless of the process. So it's an extent risk, but it's not necessarily something that's specifically related to low code. Oh, I disagree. I yeah. disagree completely. You think the because whole it premise, seems... the whole premise of low code, no code is the people who do not have training 
are using it. Okay. So and it's a greater risk. So in some this... right. Yeah. So some subset of all people who have training actually retain the training and do things right. I don't care whether that's fifty percent, eighty percent, or even thirty percent, but at least you can expect that programmers have had some basic level of training. Mm -hmm. So and the point of low code, no code is to bring programming to non non-programmers yeah. for which zero percent have had any training well the flip side is that, i mean if i look at people in excel and there's a certain amount of people who've been inspired by excel to go on and become programmers and this is true and right. and um, I, I love i love excel for that because it is so logical mm. and i have friends who claim that they're not mathematical at all and they're not technical at all who have better logical minds than 97 percent of all technologists that i know <laughs> because they've had the discipline the excel taught them to think structured because they had to the uh, the final aspect that's in the positives is the fact that it does address skill shortages. You are getting business outcomes without having to go and find specific skill sets. So like it or lump it, the shortage is real. Companies don't do a lot of work to promote new people, create new employees, to train, to educate. They don't really support education. And the skill shortage around technology, around integration of, of tooling is not is not there. And low-code does address that. Fair. Well, another thing it does address, and I think it's important, is that it brings some of the technology challenges and possibilities to people who otherwise wouldn't know about them. So you have a whole bunch of business people who are not ever going to be technologists, don't want to be technologists, but now they better understand how technology can enable what they're trying to do. And that's actually very powerful in an organization, because the more people who understand the, the power of technology, the better decisions you're going to be making around anything yeah. that touches technology, which is everything. Okay. Let's cover some negatives. There are negatives to low code. I think you've covered oh, one I've been of them. covering negatives. Yeah, I think know. my big negative is that you, uh, that is, is the sorcerer's apprentice. Yeah, the so, last, what are your thoughts? Uh, Lock-in. A lot of these low code mm -hmm. tools have a high aspect of lock-in. You give them your data and your, you know, they have something. And, if those tools become critical to your organization in some way, you become completely dependent on them. Think of, uh, and my example there would be, think of how many custom spreadsheets have been developed by companies that become a critical part of their reporting process. What happens if that was on an outsourced platform, you know, on a cloud app or something like that? You are locked in and paying for that indefinitely and you have very little ownership or control over that key step. I think that's a risk. You agree? Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you an actual question here, um, because I'm not as familiar with the tools as some of my colleagues are. I would imagine that there is a way that you can quickly and easily diagram the business process that you are now coding, mm. uh, and capture that for future reference, so that heaven forfend you decide to walk away from that vendor, you can then re-implement that same business process very quickly because hello, no mm. code, low code in a new tool. So I would argue that lock-in is actually significantly less with low code, no code than with traditional development yeah. environments. That would be viable. I could see it going both ways. I think it would be a subjective, depend on the platform, how much data was locked inside. <clears throat> like for Snowflake, you have to upload all your data to their platform. Well, if you ever want to get that data later on, you may have to pay to extract Good luck it. with that. Yeah, yeah. you know, or, or whatever the tooling might be. So I think it's a subjective, but it would be a consideration for me. Another angle that bothers me is uh, the sales cycle where people who are in the line of business are making choices because a lot of these tools are sold like, oh, just use it for this little thing. And the next thing you know, uh, <clears throat> it gets used for a bit more, a bit more, and then suddenly it's in a critical path somewhere and it sort of creeps in the back door. It's really easy for people to adopt these tools. And I'm thinking of things like Salesforce. 
20 mm-hmm. years ago, Salesforce. Oh, yeah. You know. Yes, and- absolutely. In fact, in fact, very funny story. I have a former colleague who we spent, when we adopted Salesforce, we spent a lot of time developing our own processes. And after we amicably parted ways, she left the company. She ended up uh, getting her Salesforce certification because she absolutely adored the Mm -hmm. whole logical building out this reporting, which I thought was great. She's one of the people with that logical mind. Mm. You know, that sort of crept in as a, you know, contact tracing system grew, grew, grew. And now look at what it is today. It's a whole now. If you chose and, Salesforce, and you, suddenly you hmm. can now you can now hire Salesforce experts to do your Salesforce coding, which is not something you ever thought about as, <laughs> in, as an application team. No, and all the other ones along the way seem to have faded away. There's, there seems to be only one winner. All salespeople now are expected to have Salesforce skills and no others. It's kind of strange. Sometimes that can be both a strength and a weakness in the sense that we talked about this in the shadow IT. We talked about how recruitment companies are shadow HR, and we talked about how outsourcing your accounting, your purchasing, say your debt collection, is outsourcing your accounting. That's shadow accounting, right? In the same way here, um, the the weakness around shadow IT is it sort of happens in the background when nobody notices. It can be that these tools come in as a shadow function. Yes, and I would like to to leverage, you know, build on that. Mm-hmm. and highlight something that I think is a weakness. And I'm going to use a horrific example, but I think it's an important example, which is here in the United States, there is a movement that says best protection against an armed bad guy is an armed good guy. So there's mm-hmm. a mo- movement that says, oh, everyone and anyone should be carrying a weapon and, and trained to use it, whether that's teachers or doctors or you know anyone. Mm-hmm. And my concern with that uh, you know, aside from lots of other things, the main concern is that soldiers know this very well. You are either doing patrol or you're doing your job, but doing your job while doing patrol is it diffuses your focus, yeah. diffuses your energy. So a teacher who's carrying a gun and staying very alert on how to use it is not going to be teaching as well as a teacher who's not doing that on average. Mm. And that's the challenge. And it's not without getting into an extremely political hot button. The reality is human beings are not designed to do multiple important, very, very important things at the same time and do them all at the same level. And and you need to be able to focus on something. So yeah, I, I, that's viable. That was a concern for me is just that idea that things creep in. So it's good for this, the product maker. They can often sell it on a very low entry point. They often don't have to do a lot of sales effort. So the product doesn't even have to be very good. And we've seen that with a lot of startups where they produce minimum viable product and very proudly brag that they produced a trash product and to see if it, see if customers want to buy it. Customers get burned all the way through this process over and over and over as the product pivots left and pivots right. And, well, you know, so, no... so yeah, let, let me go ahead and sum up this because I know we're getting sort of um, a little tight on time. It sounds like you know, low code, no code has its space. You can certainly where it's not a high, high where the quality of code is absolutely essential and the answers have to be right. Uh, it also seems to be great for doing proof of concept, get something out there quickly to then begin to perfect and get better. And we also seem to agree that it would be helpful if the practitioners, even if they're not technologists, as well as technologists, get some training around good coding practices and how to sanity check your your output for mm for mistakes. So yeah. I think there's a place for low code, no code. I think the challenge for most organizations is figuring out exactly where it fits and where it doesn't. Yeah. The last one, of course, is security. So it does have to fit into your security strategy somehow, but that should yes, be fairly absolutely. obvious, you know, data ownership, controls, access controls, who's going to do the authentication. Although 
I think increasingly with identity management becoming a thing, you know, and becoming core to most IT teams, just being able to say this low code tool just integrates with my identity management, you know, my Okta or my Duo, and then that's all controlled. So there yes, is. Yes, I agree. Hmm. I agree. As the as the you know as identity management and I, as identity becomes core for cybersecurity, I think that problem actually is something that low code no code solves. Yeah, and there's a whole bunch of other ones like who owns the data, is the data secured? Where's the residential? But they're all the fairly obvious things that would be taken apart. This is again the weakness in easy to use, easy to adopt, but then all of a sudden you find something critical's gone and it's hosted in Russia or that. So they're the issues. I think. Is okay. there anything else that we haven't covered? Uh, I think I think it's a wrap. And uh, just a highlight for everyone, first and foremost, if you liked this, please mosey on over to nemertes.com and join our community. Greg and I hang out there. The episodes are announced there ahead of time, and we are happy to discuss what we've discussed with you. So please just hit nemertes.com, apply for the community. We'll get you right in, and Greg and I will be chatting there and hanging out there and look forward to talking to you. Also, you can find this in many more fine, free technical podcasts, along with the community blog at PacketPushers.net. Follow Packet Pushers on Twitter as at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, rate us on iTunes, and come join us at Nemertis. Last but not least, remember that too much technology is never enough.